This program is intended for mature audiences only. Altitude adjustment may contain language, images, or other content that some may find offensive. Your discretion is advised. Welcome to Altitude Adjustment. Good afternoon, I'm Leon Davis, and you're listening to Altitude Adjustment, the podcast about people, politics, and professions. And we'd like to welcome today, August Jade Sterling. Uh, Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure, very much so. So when we first started, uh, so uh, before the, the show starts, before we go on live, we have a conversation with our guests, just kind of. Uh, make them feel comfortable talking to us. And one of the things that you said, uh, I wanted to kind of follow up before we move into, uh, so uh, you're you're an author, uh, but before we start talking yes. about your book, um, one of the things you mentioned was uh, that you were at a board meeting. Um, you know, how are you involved with the school system? Well, our board oversees the human services resources which puts us into contact with uh, the medical system, the police, uh, criminal justice system, the school system, because we can have children who are truant. We can have parents who are not sending their children to school for various reasons. We can have children who are, are hungry, who have many needs. So it comes to the human services department of the county. So therefore we somehow hear about a lot of things that are going on. And we try to see if there's a better way. Here in Olmstead County, they do a lot of good things. But as any other part of government, you have to try to improve on those things you aren't doing as well. And it's very, very important to take care of our children. Very, very important. Because though many of the parents have so many issues that they may not be able to address their children's needs and they may not be able to see them. Also, we have to understand that there are different languages, different cultures, and blending of all these to make it work for as many people as possible is in a tremendous task in itself because we want people to feel included and not excluded. So so what do you see as the number one issue or top two or three issues that your board is facing? As far as the the affordable housing, Mm -hmm. affordable housing, food, and Mm -hmm. also um, the issues that involve eventually lead to to mental health issues, chemical dependency, um, physical abuse of women. These things are very important. And within those layers, you have education. How is the child going to get education? educated, you have self-worth, you have all of these things that interact, interconnect, and you try to help as much as you can devise creative ways so that people who are sitting here might have funds from another pot and they can use them in the pot in which they need it. You need, we need to expand our scope and bring more of ourselves instead of Having people come to us, we need to go to them and interact and say, hey, we've got to help on any level we can. So do you do you feel like. So how has the pandemic um, or has the pandemic changed your situation as far as those three things? Or is it just a continuation of, you know, the problem just with a slight uptick or a slight change because of the pandemic? No, the pandemic has definitely affected all of us. First of all, you don't have personal contact, getting children educated. And we have a youth commission and we have several of the younger uh, generations sitting on the board. And um, they came up with the idea with living room tutors. So they're tutoring people or children their own ages if they, since they couldn't get to school, they couldn't get the help they needed. The program became so popular, people from all over the country are calling them. Hmm. Um, We had the distancing. Um, We had people who couldn't come into the building 
where social services is located. So they had to make accommodations to make sure they were serviced through Zoom, uh, virtually by phone, but the services continued and didn't stop. Those are the things they look forward to doing in this county. How can we help? Are we perfect? Not yet, but we're waiting or we're trying to get there. Okay. <laughs> Did you have any questions, Warren? What county are you in again? Olmstead. Olmstead. Yes. And that's in Minnesota. State? Minnesota. Okay. Minnesota. That's southeast of Minneapolis, about 90 miles. Gotcha. Okay. 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 So now we're going to get into your book. So I'm going <laughs> to. <laughs> so I'm going to okay. show a copy of the book. It's the American Duke crossed lines, twisted fate. That's for those people who um, can't um, see it. Cause there are people that are going to listen uh, to the, the audio version, but not watch the video version. That's the American Duke crossed lines, twisted fate by August Jade Sterling. Okay. So now, when you and I first yes. talked about you coming on the show, one of the things that you said to me was, it started out as a love story, and then it turned into something completely different. <laughs> it is a love story. Years ago, and I'm not too many, not centuries ago, but years ago, I had this idea to write a love story. And I couldn't write the love story the way love stories are normally written especially in the Regency era, era in England, 1820s. And I said to myself, we have to break a ceiling here. Why is it I don't see people of color as aristocrats um, doing things, uh, have, living the finer life? So that was the approach. I'd make this happen. But then I said to myself, how am I going to make this happen? And I realized I had to get from America to England and have someone become an aristocrat or an aristocrat remain an aristocrat, but bring someone of color along the line. So therefore that was, didn't seem possible because America did not recognize interrace marriages at that time. They were illegal. Canada didn't recognize them. They would probably shoot you, lynch you and kill you first before they had any other discussions. Mm -hmm. And so I said to myself, aha, Let's go to the principle of international law and follow those that process and make the marriage legal. So therefore, I can have this child, the um, the duke. I can have him legally inherit the dukedom. So that's what we did. But little did I know that when I got to England, it was just as bad. <laughs> I, my lineage wasn't perfect. They did not see people of color. They didn't recognize them. And you can see these trends as they carry forth today. You look at the um, palace. How many black people do you see or people of color working? Surrounding the queen. It's as though they didn't exist. It's as though they didn't matter at all. You were there to serve. You were there to clean up and that was the end of the conversation. So I said, okay, we have another problem here. So not only did I leave the racism of America, we stepped into it in Britain and also the question or the concept of pure lineage, mm -hmm. which can't be true. Now, if you'll go back for a moment, I said the Regency era, 1820s or when, um, uh, George was sitting there and uh, he had problems. And so he married this woman and her name was Charlotte. She became Queen Charlotte. Mm -hmm. But Queen Charlotte happened to be, have six descendant lines from Margarita del Costa. And she was the daughter of Alfonso III of Portugal and his mistress, Morana Gill. Well, his mistress happened to have been an African Moor which made Margarita an African and also made Charlotte, Queen Charlotte, an African also. So we now have this mixed breed, as they would call them then, interracial person who is queen. And this interracial person had 15 children, 13 of which reached adulthood. 
and one became the father of Queen Victoria. And as we know, Queen Victoria is the great-great-grandmother of the present queen and the late Duke. So we have this really mixed group of people and they aren't white. They have blood in them that's black or more or African, uh, however you choose to describe it. And it just makes this whole thing so surreal. Why aren't we seeing this and why isn't it being brought to the light? And why aren't we celebrating the fact that people are mixed? They bring this rich blend to the world, to the country, and everybody's saying, oh, we're white. Nope, <laughs> not even close to being white. <laughs> you are what you are, and that's fine. So in spite of that, we're back in the 1820s, and I have to deal with these people who are here mm -hmm. in America, and we get them to Britain, and they're having all this fun because not only do we have a love story, we have a spy story, we have a few murders, and all of a sudden it's no longer a love story. <laughs> it's life in general hitting you as you as a an interracial person, interracial person as they would call it then, interracial person hitting or upsetting the elite of the aristocracy and they get upset, they will kill you first before they allow you to infiltrate their ranks. And they don't care. So now, don't forget, we have a Prince Regent who's sitting on the throne because his father is kind of loopy in the head. And we have a Prince Regent who's sitting on the phone who's not white either. But everyone forgets that his mother was not white. So they go along thinking, oh, gee, this is great. We can't have these people who are mixed in the aristocracy. No, no, no. We've got to take care of this now. Let's go. <laughs> so love is never easy when you're a person of color, even then. And what I saw was the trends that carry forth today. It was greed, mm -hmm. racism, hate, money, profit. That's all there was. Plus, we throw in ignorance and we have a terrible, terrible situation. So it parallels what's going on today in our world, what happened then. And if you ask the question, have we improved? I don't know. All I know is that somewhere along the line, we have to stop the foolishness and understand we are blended. Now, there's one other thing which might upset people with my book is the fact that most people didn't realize that Cromwell went to Ireland to get rid of, you know, Catholicism and a lot of Irish people. And after the Irish rebellion of 1798, they sold Irish women to America as slaves and the Caribbean. These are not indentured servants. Indentured servants are something that's totally different. These people were bound shackled and put on slave boats and sent to America. Not only were they put on slave boats, they, the inhumane conditions for anyone on a slave boat was more than horrific. And some of the Irish women couldn't take it and they drove nails into their brains. Wow. This is just what we do to people to get an upper hand, to be unfair, to think we should be the controlling party. That whole dynamic of I control you, you control me, or whatever is over. We can't do it. The world can't take it, and we're seeing it more and more as we go day to day. We can't take it in education. We can't take it in our relationships with other people. It may hurt some people to understand that we're blended, that we have to get along together, but that's the way it should be. Will we ever get there? I don't know. So now we have these Irish women who were brought to America to cohabit with African slaves. That was their purpose, produce children. So the outcome are children who are part Irish, part black or whatever else the mix brings to the table. And we don't recognize that. We never recognize that in most schools because there was a bias against telling the truth in history in many cases. So now we have, okay, on the table, here we have Irish people 
we have people, black African slaves, we have all kinds of things. And you throw into this mix, this crazy aristocracy mm-hmm. that has been dominating the world in places, uh, in countries of color. And they would address these people as inferior apes. Um, they can't be educated. They shouldn't hold positions in government. And they were being benevolent because they needed to be whipped in order to be controlled. Now, what kind of mentality is that? So you take that mentality back to Britain, superimpose them, whatever else they had going on, and then you bring these Americans in who uh, are saying, oops, we have a problem, (laughs) a major problem. So that's basically how we get into the American Duke. (laughs) Wow. I mean, wow. I was writing a love story. Okay, yeah, okay a love story. That's a... But, you know, think of it like this. Uh, today, the love story for many people of color is just like that. They may be poor. They've reached people who don't like them because of the color of their skin or where they're from. They... um they're married. The marriage has all the tensions because you can't really be that tender, kind person. You're fighting all these external problems, and they do affect the home life. Mm-hmm. The people who um, just would rather see you fail than to succeed, and you get these jobs that will not cover your expenses, and you're working very hard, but you still see hope in a country that promises freedom, that says, okay, you are equal. We are not going to, okay, I'm stepping into it now. We are not going to curtail your voting rights. We are not going to make you feel less than inferior. And then you get here and you think this is gonna happen. And then what happens? Just the opposite. And you have people who don't understand you, who've never been in your shoes, who just ignore you. They don't see you. So I hate to say something, but they've never seen you. They don't want to see you. And it's like you don't matter. I was listening to Dr. Shirley Thompson. I don't know if you know her. She's an artist, composer, Black woman in England. She did the symphony um, for the... Um, um, Golden Jubilee, the Queen's Golden Jubilee. And she was the first woman in about 40 years to conduct and compose a symphony. And I was listening to her talk about how she constructed this. And she said, they didn't include me in the picture through the development of England through all the years, the thousands of years, hundreds of years. So I'm going to include myself. I'm popping myself right into this symphony. And she did it musically, and it, um, she is a she loves dance. But also towards the last movement, or in the last movement, she combined hip hop, um, classical music, um, modern uh, modern concepts of uh, I would say elevator music. She combined all of these things into this final movement, which brought a flash of saying we have to come together and be one. We are not a white Britain. We are a Britain of many colors. Like this country is not a white country. It's a country of many colors. So we didn't reconcile it in the 1820s. And I'm surprised that we still have the problem now. Not surprised, I should say, I'm hurt. We still have the problem now, very hurt. And that shouldn't be so. Uh, I have this Irish slave, slave women, how well is that documented? It, there are a lot of documents. There are books on it. Um, as a matter of fact, I will send Leon a white paper listing some of the uh, resources and sites. Um, when I first started my research, uh, I came across this book. I think it was entitled White Slavery. And it just laid it out. And it had diagrams of the ships. And I'm saying, oh, we forgot to mention this, didn't we? But again, listen to this. If we're sending these slaves to the Caribbean, wouldn't it follow that 
naturally they would drop some off in America too. Likely. Yes. Possibly. Because at that time, Irish women were less expensive than African women to buy. So they went to the lesser price. Uh, any businessman would do that. And as I said, these ships were, let's talk about the ships for a second, were so bad. And the captains were so bad. Not only was there abuse, there was rape, et cetera, of the women. But if they were running low on food or going to be intercepted by the British Navy, they had thought nothing of throwing the slaves overboard. Wow. And that's the way they treated people of color. We didn't see you. Let me talk about how bad, another way how bad it was. Fanny Eaton was born in Jamaica and she went to um, Britain and she worked at the Royal Academy of Art as a model. And this was pre-Raphaelite uh, painters. And one in particular, um, Rossetti, commented on how beautiful she was. And that was the first time they recognized a woman of color and her beauty. They didn't have them in paintings. They didn't see them. They were not considered beautiful. The women weren't considered beautiful. The men weren't considered handsome. And when he recognized her, she broke through that ceiling that had never been mentioned. We now have beautiful women of color in painting. So if you are ever hanging around in London and you're at the uh, Royal Academy of Art, stop in and check out Fanny um, because she was there. She made an impact. Can I tell you anything else? <laughs> History 101? <laughs> yeah. Uh the name Goodman is that by any chance Irish? Because I, I used to think it was Jewish, but I think somewhere I read that it was Irish. It could be Irish. Now, I strongly encourage, and this is just to go get a DNA test, mm -hmm. ancestry one, two, three, or whatever you choose to use, and um, trace your records back as far as you can. I know for an example that my family has an Irish root to it. We also have a British root to it. Also, a, a Eastern Jewish root to it, besides um, an African root and an Asian root. You will find that you're this incredible mixture of people. And this has been a pet peeve of mine a long time when people say, well, I'm biracial. Well, most People of color are biracial. They are black. They're biracial. And we have such beautiful blends, but no one wanted us to recognize who we really were. Not to downplay the fact that we are black, we are African, or we are from the Caribbean or wherever, but the fact that we are so rich in so many different cultures and we have a right to explore them and understand them. Absolutely, I agree. And I have work. no idea what you what your mix is, but it's not pure African. Okay, I can tell both of you that now. Oh, yeah, it's we not. know that. We know. That. <laughs> well, we might as well tell the world that too while we're at it, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that that's um, automatic. That the the slave owners, the masters were raping the women every chance they could. And there's no pure Africans after the slaves came over here. Well, I read an article in the Atlantic, I think about two years ago, and it said that exactly because of the cruelty of slavery. Mm -hmm. um, every black American who was born here has about 16.9% European blood white blood in them. Sure. And um, slavery was not a good gig. I don't care what anyone says, you know, that you hear these really crazy stories about people saying, well, the black people or the Negro smiled all the time. They seemed to be happy and all this ridiculous stuff. And you're looking at them now, which planet did you land on? Because it wasn't this one. Right. And it is so hard to understand why we have that mentality. That's impossible. We treated people, we oppressed them, we depressed them. We did everything we could 
and now in 2021, what else can you do to me? You've killed our men. You ripped our families apart. You've just looked at us and told us we were nothing. We've achieved greatness. We continue to achieve greatness and you can't recognize that. You're looking at us as jailbirds. You're looking at us people who uh, rip off the welfare system. It's, that's not true. There's very few little welfare fraud. Most people need it. They need a helping hand. And that's what we have to give. I'm not asking how you got there. That's not the problem. The problem is you're there. Now let us see what we can do to help you. And if you can get out of it, that would be even better. Absolutely. So, Amen. so that's where I am. You know? <laughs> I'm not going to make it to politics. <laughs> Don't want to make it to politics. <laughs> well, uh, we need more people to speak out like that. We really do. We really well, do. I think th this is another thing I, I believe. A lot of people are afraid to speak out. No one's listening to them. Have you, you might not have had the experience or ever had the experience of going to a social service department and they talked down to you. They didn't understand you. Mm -hmm. They were critical. And there was movie, there've been movies where people were denied benefits because they received a gift of a toaster from someone else that they were told they were nothing. And they, you know, well, we can't give you that, but they never attempted to try to work through the problem. And that has to be the new direction for social services. And for all of us, let's try to work through this problem because if we have a country that says, well, I don't like your election, so therefore we're gonna just take down the government, that isn't what we're about. We're about, we should be about people being kinder, understanding, more loving and saying, okay, we made some serious, serious mistakes. What can we do to change the course of our direction? Perfect, no, but changing the course so that we are all in concert. Does that mean I'm your best friend? No. Does that mean I'm gonna marry your husband or your, not your husband, your brother or whatever? No, it means that we can get along in the same room and we can talk things out. And I'm not sitting in my ivory tower waiting for you to come to me. I'm coming to you. And I'm going to see what I can do to help you. So that's, I feel, is where we are. And that's how my simple love story became a complex mess or, uh, of what we're looking at in today's world, people being rejected by their family because of the color or their uh, lineage, people who um, cannot accept other people because they are different than they are. This is crazy. I don't get it. Um, I didn't become God, and I don't know anyone else who has, or the God of your heart, or whomever you worship, the universe. It's not in the in the script. And so where do we where are we getting this crazy script? I need an input. Are you writing the script, you two? <laughs> I know Warren had some questions. I was going to let him ask his questions. No, I, I the script. I I don't know. I mean, the, <laughs> the, true, the the point is, is that the true history of what really happened, the things you were talking about, it's all been it's buried. They don't talk about it. They don't want us to know. Now, when we try to to discuss these things, they give us they want to give us a guilt trip behind their guilt. You know, oh, you're trying to make us feel bad. My daughter, she hates being white now. Well, that's not my problem, <laughs> you know. And trust me, the daughter doesn't hate being white now. Uh, that's the parent that's <laughs> trying to set saying. an overview on the topic mm -hmm. because the parent is uncomfortable. Exactly, yeah. And to get people to have an open dialogue about racism is very difficult. I've had people tell me, I don't want to talk about it. We've talked about it too much. Well, the conversation has just started. We haven't talked about anything. And so you just look at people and say to yourself, where are we and what's true? The other overlay on all of this is that people will come at you and tell you they're Christians. Well, the last time I looked in a Bible, 
I didn't see your behavior in the Bible. And they, they you know, look, they're looking at me. Huh? What? I think from the pulpit down, we have to start, as you said, Lauren, doing the truth. Yep. Okay. Now let's do the truth. Again, this church over here who's been that's been segregated for the last 300 years or 200 years may not be a place where people of color will go. But I was talking to a gentleman, and he happens to be white, and he was a pastor for 21 years. And one of his last assignments was a church in Texas, a huge mega church. And his congregation was black. And he said that was the most welcoming experience he had ever had. Kindness shown to him, which opened up his eyes and gave him another perspective on life. Not the typical person sitting in judgment or the fact that um, I am privileged because I am white, but one who saw the everyday problems and struggles of people. That richness is the one we need to take forth in life so we have a better perspective. My perspective is not right all the time. I don't know all the things. I wish I knew more. There's so much I don't know. So many cultures I haven't explored and been a part of. I want these because I become a better person. And I can say to you, oh gee, can I please have another samosa or something, you know? I just can say these things with oh, just a wonderful, you know, love and light. But I don't have to be afraid of you. You don't have to isolate yourself from me. I can live next door to you. I can be a friend. And I can be just an acquaintance, but I'm there. So it's all these things which we have missed by trying to divide this country by color or cultural differences or things of that. So again, my little love story is not a love story, but I thought it was. <laughs> well, the, the, the thing that, you know, as, as that I'm thinking about as you're talking is um, there's no benefit to the, um, um, the, the white community to acknowledge racism or want to have that conversation because for them having that conversation means to admitting some very heinous things that, that have gone on and that, that their wealth and their the society that they're living in and uh, the world around them that was built for them, they'd have to recognize it was built for them and that the idea is to dismantle that so that everyone can be a part of the system. So there's there's no real benefit for them uh, to have that conversation, and and that's why I think part of the difficulty in having the conversation that they don't want to talk about it is because they recognize that. I think that you may be true on one part or on one side of the equation, but I think there may be four or five different parts to this equation. Okay, and one is denial. Mm -hmm. As we keep denying things pushing them under the rug, mm -hmm. the little pile of denials gets larger and larger and larger until you trip over it mm -hmm. or it explodes. And we noticed that it exploded last year. Mm -hmm. We denied so many things, pushed it under the rug. And then when a horrific incident occurred, the truth could no longer be denied. It is uncomfortable because I have no idea what the average white person is thinking mm -hmm. besides I can come to some conclusion based on their reactions. But if we deny so much more, we're going to have an explosion in this country that's going to really rock the country and no one is going to have peace. No one. And if we don't bring peace to this country, the democracy that the world used to look up to and probably still does, we will not have a country and we won't have a world because this will spread. The little tentacles will go all over the world and we will end up being this internal chaos mm -hmm. to external chaos. 
we don't need that. That's number one. Denial is number one. Number two is yes, yes, the system was built for them on the backs of many people of color. They were not recognized. They are not recognized today. And they don't want to have these people who really did the work recognized and being, being brought, bought, brought forth and also someone who is being paid for what they took away from them. You take property from people who live in Malibu because you want the property. Now you have to give it back with a few million dollars on top of that. Yes, because you had no right to take it. But again, they think they had a right. Now, I would like to know, how did you think you had a right to demean people, take their property, abuse them, and then go off and say, oh, I'm a wonderful person? I would like to know answers to these questions. And yes, I have a dialogue with you. I'm sorry, Warren, what'd you say? That's a very good question. How did they feel that they were right to do that? I think a lot of people didn't, they, they benefited from the system while not actively supporting the system, but passively supporting the system. So if you watch someone else lynch someone, you will always say, I didn't lynch him, but you stood there and you cheered on or you watched while the purchase person was being lynched and you knew it was the wrong thing to do and you did nothing. And so- Well, wasn't that the George Floyd situation? Exactly. We just changed the method of kill, killing. Right. We just changed the method of killing. And mm -hmm. uh, we just said, okay, you're dead. Right. You don't count. We don't even see you. Yeah. But a lot of people will, and, will say, I didn't, I didn't uh, kill George Floyd. I didn't do anything to cause that. But if you support a system that kills George Floyd's all over the place, um, and, and I think that's part of uh, the, the movement to say white silence is white violence, is that if you're not actively trying to dismantle a system that is unfair, then you are basically um, supporting that system. You're making that system possible. You are a part of the system. And Angela Davis said, it's not just a, mo a moment now to say I'm and um, I'm not a racist. Mm -hmm. You have to be anti-racism. Mm -hmm. Dismantle the entire racism concept. And you get a lot of isms in there when you're dismantling that. And people will just deny, deny, deny. And you get, like I said, piles and piles of denials, and then they explode. And people are saying, well, isn't that terrible? No, it's worse than terrible. You caused the problem. Why don't you say something and take care of the problem? Well, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. Yes, you do. Stop. That's number one. Just stop. And so you know, they, they look at you. I was at a meeting once, and they had this panel of people. It was Black History Month, or um, and the panel was discussing racism and what it was like to grow up, you know, being black in certain towns and certain states throughout the country. And um, this one man who was white stopped me and said, I didn't realize black people were still having problems. And I'm saying, what world are you living in? And it's just this, not only denial, but yeah. separation. The problem is over there. Mm -hmm. It's not here. Mm -hmm. The problem is here. We can't put it over there because once you put it over there, you separate yourself out and think, oh, I'm fine. I'm good. And as you said, well, I didn't do anything. I just watched it happen and never said a word. And so we have to, again, go in and take a serious look at ourselves, our hearts, our intentions. And if we are really, really intent on being mean, on being hateful, then we have to start looking at ways of countering that. Who do I know? And I think one of the greatest ways to begin to change perspectives is to volunteer. Hmm. Go out 
and volunteer. And I have, a, I have a, uh, something uh, that I say to most people, if you're complaining and you don't volunteer, say nothing to me, just keep walking. Understood. And you can volunteer. Most people can volunteer until they can't anymore. I had this one woman, she told me, and she was in New York. And she said, I can't get out of my house. She couldn't. She was immobilized and she was paralyzed. And all she could do was go to the doctor. Her daughter would bring her groceries, et cetera. But she ran this resource program. Hmm. If you needed something, all you had to do was call her on the phone. Within 24 hours, she'd have that answer for you. And she was an expert in schools. And she was always intent on making sure Black students got the best education. This was not a Black woman. And she would say, oh, that child's having problems, no problems with the law, but there wasn't influences of male, female in the life. And she'd say, send them off to the school. They have scholarships. Send this person there. And she was volunteering even though she couldn't leave her apartment. So I'm saying there's so much we can all do and so many creative things like the teenagers and living room tutors. We don't have to sit on our duffs and do nothing. But once you get involved, that perspective changes and I don't care where the involvement is, whether you're picking up trash at the local school or whatever, once that changes, you're on a road to a different outcome. And that was one of my solutions. I know I, I don't know if people volunteer, but I think it's important for the fabric of this country. So uh, this was your first book. Do you anticipate an, a second? It's already written. <laughs> and it's the sequel. <laughs> you got to find out what happens here. <laughs> and no, I am not. The American Duke series will continue. I hope people buy the book and enjoy the read but also understand that there is, this is based on historical fact. And in the book, back of the book, I have historical notes. And one of the main forces to abolish slave uh, transportation in Britain was William Wilberforce. Wilberforce College, mm -hmm. University in Ohio, named after him. Amazing Grace, the movie. This man was sick all of his life, or most of his life, and fought to get the British to stop transporting slaves. The inhumane conditions. So I mix it up in the book and add my character to it also. But there is historical fact. We are jumping off from that point of view. And it is also a painless way to learn a little history, like Irish slaves in America. Mm -hmm. Painless, painless way to learn that, oh, we need to take a better, a different look at this, a better look at this, or we need to correct some of the biases that we've been telling people. Sure. I got a question. Sure. In light of uh, all your research and the book you've written, how do you see the situation with the so-called former royals, royals or whatever that came to America and all of the drama and the tension that they're going through with with Britain. How, how do you see that uh, in compared to the history over there? It's the same thing in terms of, in my book, the royals now and what's happening to them, it's the same thing. When you were a royal, they didn't see you. And especially if you were of color, because they didn't really, really see you at all. Now, don't forget, Megan is not the only royal. Um, or arist aristocrat of color. There is the um, uh, Viscountess of Weymouth, Emma Ten, mm -hmm. who is a celebrated cook. Um, she has modeled for some of the top houses in Europe. Her father is Nigerian. Her mother is an English socialite. When um, her father-in-law passes on, her husband becomes a Marquess, the Marquess of Bath. She is a high-ranking uh, aristocrat, but no one ever recognized her. No one saw her. No one ever made a stink of it. When they saw Megan, some people I felt thought it was their turn to continue the tradition of British 
Um, I don't see you as a black person. I don't recognize you. You aren't pretty. You, uh, well, let's see what paces we can put you through. And I think also that uh, her husband said, oh no, you aren't gonna do this. We've been there, done this route. When my mother died, we understand the angst. We understand the mental problems this can cause. We are getting out of here. On the other hand, I also think that if Britain was really coming forth into the 21st century, mm-hmm. that they might say, come home, let's talk about this. Let's work this out. And that is the way I would like to know that people are handling situations. Come home, let's work this out. Now, Warren, did I answer your question at all? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Do you see any real changes like that happening over there? I don't know what happened at the funeral of the Duke of Edinburgh. I was hoping I was hoping that it would, that they would be more open, a little more receptive. It appeared that they were, but again, I didn't get it. Why aren't I seeing people of color surrounding the, the queen? Why aren't I seeing people of color at the palace working with the queen? I don't see these things happening. Mm-hmm. And I need to see them as a person, not as an author, happening so I know that there's representation, true representation, and that Britain is opening its doors. There are times when you would, ne- would never believe that Britain had a person of color living there. That's the way things have been presented. Wow. And have I been to London? I love London. It's one of my favorite cities course i love most cities so you know because there's something for me to learn i love 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 it and i remember when i was in britain um on the times i was there i arrived from the continent and the concierge had a message for me they said there's someone waiting for you in the club room so i went to the club room and lo and behold my mother and my aunt were sitting there they were in London shopping and the concierge says, we never let them do anything. We made sure they were taken care of. We, you know, and I'm saying, it doesn't matter. There's nothing going to happen to them. But it was just the idea that they were taking care of these two ladies and my, and my, my mother didn't drink. And she was sitting there having a cocktail and basically they had to help her to her room because she hadn't had a cocktail. But I'm saying, that's the kind of interaction I'm looking for. Right. Please be kind, be kinder, understand one another, get rid of this craziness, which you were taught that didn't have a factual basis. You know, you're taught all these things. Racism is not uh, something you're born with. It's something you're taught. So someone has been instilling hate in you. Examine yourself. Start chipping away at those little things that are true that all people of color are on welfare. No, they aren't. Where did you learn that? Well, my mother told me, well, we don't want people of color living in this neighborhood. They'll bring the property values down. Are you crazy? They're gonna increase your property values because they're gonna be out there mowing the lawn all the time. We know that. So, you know, it is just hysterically wrong. Yeah. What we are doing to ourselves and our country changes Warren I'm expecting you to initiate them all <laughs> I'll get I need a passport then put passport and uh, we'll, let's go over there and start shaking some stuff up no I think that um I would love to see us be kinder to each other just here oh absolutely I mean you know the, the way I see it is that the settlers came from over there here and uh, they brought their ways and there's, there's resistance to change. I think they're, con- they're connected. Everything is connected mm-hmm. and resistance to change has always been in the mix. Yep. Always, but we have to change. And I remember sitting in a meeting, I don't know which city it was, and I was sitting in the meeting and one of the uh, members said, well, don't you think we're moving a little too fast? Don't you think we should slow down? And I'm saying, okay, we can have another four years, of 400 years of this garbage. 
no, we aren't moving too quickly. If anything, we've been moving too slowly. Much, much too slowly to be the country we have the potential of being. And that's the important thing. I want to see people graduating from medical school, law school, um, CPAs, entertainment, sports, just flourishing, just doing it and saying, I am a part of a community that allows this. I can be the best person I can be. And that's what the goal is. That was what the American Duke's message is. I don't care what the obstacles are, you go and you be the best person you can be. And if no one accepts you, accept yourself. Yeah. But do you think a lot of people are afraid of that, seeing other people succeed, thinking that that just might uh, have a negative effect on them? Of course, because if you succeed, you're taking something away from me. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this concept, which I believe in, is that there's enough for everyone. Right. Just find that little hole and fill it. You can become the next billionaire. You don't have to have someone tell you you can't be. But people, like you said, are resistant to change. They have been ingrained that someone will take it from me. This is the competition. This is the way we should exist. And when you enter into that composition, competition to me, you don't get very far because it's the tug, the pull. No one wins. Mm -hmm. But if you say you can go out there, you can do it. Yep, you're going to take some knocks, maybe a lot of knocks. But when you're done, you will have to accomplish what you want it to do. And I think that's important also. We shall overcome. Hopefully. No, we are overcoming. Not we shall. We are overcoming. We are smiling we and doing it peacefully. What ways to go, though? That's what I'm saying. No, we have a long ways to go. And mm -hmm. that's why I'm saying we have been moving too slowly in the past 400 years. Yeah. Too slowly. Way too slowly. And we have precepts and concepts that have been brought forth with no basis whatsoever to influence the lives of people, whether they are a person of color or a person who's white. We have these precepts. Well, they don't they don't work. Or these precepts that all these people are mean or they're going to lynch me. We have these precepts that are not based on fact. Some of them are but many of them aren't. And we have to stop these things that aren't based on facts, that aren't truth, that we've been brought up with that we need to change. And I can understand why people of color may not ever trust anyone who's white. If you've been lynched and done, 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 and all these other things for years, would you trust someone white? And I don't understand why white people don't understand the anger. They don't understand that you've done this. And like you said, everything is connected. You beat us then. You're trying to beat us now. It hasn't changed. Yeah. So what do we do to make a change? We need to start talking to one another and acknowledging the truth from the past, things that have happened, and figure out how to move forward. Yes. And the first thing is talking. And I don't have to be violent. We need to talk, but it has to be a genuine heart-to-heart -heart conversation. Yeah. Nothing of uh, that's bluff. I don't need to talk about fashion today, nor you know anything else. I need to understand how did we get here, and what can we do to move on in a better way. So I understand you. Um... Uh, or a jazz singer. <laughs> this is such a crazy story. <laughs> my um, my father's cousin, which would make him a cousin of mine, was a very famous jazz pianist. And he played jazz for Ella, Sarah, he, just a beautiful man. And so I think I must have met him once when I was like 10 or 11. And my sister was trained classically. Well, I couldn't play the piano. I couldn't play the violin. I couldn't play the cello. 
And so they just kind of said, go away, go away. You know, we, after 13 years of piano lessons and you can only play chopsticks, we have a problem here. <laughs> so I said, yes, we do. So quit trying to make me go. And your violin didn't do, do too well either. I said, I know, I know. So they just, we didn't do anything with Shirley. Wait, Shirley just went away. You know, then one day I said, I think I want to sing jazz. And the family looked at me and said, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I decided I'm going to go to New York City and take jazz lessons. So I started going to New York and lo and behold, they realized I had a voice, a great voice. And they said, oh, this is your instrument. So I just had this wonderful time singing and learning jazz. I'm not Sarah, I'm not Ella, but it was just another dimension of me it was always there, but they, my parents in their concept of musical instruments, they were thinking of the piano and other instruments of that ilk. And so they never thought of my voice. Mm. And my voice I love because not only can it sing, but I do voiceovers. And it's a great way to train your voice for voiceovers. So I just, love my voice <laughs> and that's wow. my singing career <laughs> now who was the piano person in the family um billy taylor the billy taylor jazz quartet dr taylor yes oh wow oh he's famous he's very well and i was sitting in his house or his condo and I didn't know that. I was just with daddy and mommy and the rest of my sisters. And we were just having, being silly, what kids do at that age. And, but I'm telling you, I have a sister who is so good on the piano, classically trained, and she couldn't find her niche in that area. And that was okay. She opened up one of the best vintage clothing stores in Manhattan. And that's where the museums and the directors would come when they were doing their retro fashion shows, they would stop in and all the designers like um, Mr. Blackwell would just come in and, you know, patronize and talk to her and they would discuss fashion. But she never found that niche in the classical piano world. Hmm. Again, the opportunity wasn't, th it wasn't there or she didn't explore it or whatever, but it, she just didn't end up as classical pianist. But I took care of them all. I just went and sang jazz. <laughs> fine you know so what's next who knows another did, book did you, record, did you record anything pardon me did you record anything um just a few demo cds and um i sang between new york city south dakota and hilton Head island south carolina okay and i had a wonderful time and what i sing having had a wonderful time is that Right now I'm doing voiceover and will I go back to singing? Yes, because I miss it so much. I miss obviously performing. You're getting it here. I love to perform on stage. I love it when people have a reaction and you've pulled their hearts out of their chest and you know you've reached them. That's the only way to go to work. If I can't do that, I don't wanna to go to work. That's awesome. <laughs> We have a podcast uh, that I'm producing called City Jazz Sessions, and we'd love to get you to uh, check us out. Uh, we'll send you a link if you don't Oh, mind. would you please? Would you please? I'd love it. Now, what do you play? Uh, I don't play. I um, grew up, uh, I did play saxophone uh, up until high school. I decided I wasn't going to be a musician. I still have it, but I just like music. I've been listening all my life, and... Uh, so I put this crew together and we're producing a show. Very good. Very yeah. good. That's your passion or one of them. Yeah, that's one of my passions is music. And that's what I like to see people having passion for things because that brings life to it. Yeah. Whether yeah. it's sitting here doing a podcast or sitting to listening to a guest and saying, wow, she started talking. She hasn't stopped. Yeah. <laughs> But it's love and it's light and that's where you are. And I know we're getting close to the end of our session, but I want to thank you very much for having me. 
I want to thank all those people who have bought or will buy the American Duke. It was my pleasure to write the story and to bring the Roxburys to life. And that was what I wanted to do. And hopefully you feel some of their pain, their angst, and also their love. Uh, so uh, if you want to tell people where they can, I know you can buy the book on Amazon. Uh, That's right. Give That's correct. Your, your website and any other information, contact information if they want to get a hold of you. Yes, you can buy the American Duke Cross Lines Twisted Faith on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. You can buy it directly from my publisher. My website is augustjadesterling.com, www.augustjadesterling, or augustjadesterling if you need to email me at gmail.com. And like I said, I'm just very thankful and grateful. And I'm also grateful that I'm alive at a time which I could write the story and feel free to write it. Because any other era, it would have been suppressed. And because you cannot have or should not have people of color in the aristocracy, nor should you talk about the Irish slaves. And I think that's important and we need to explore more of our history and learn the truth. Now there was one uh, character in the book whose, I think their surname was Sterling. Um, yes. Is that, so is there a connection there? No, I just took my favorite names, mixed them up, threw them up, and also went through this whole dictionary of British terms or British names and uh, who would might be in the aristocracy and, and which names I could borrow. And I just said, okay, let's have a mashup here. <laughs> and that's exactly what I did. Um, the connection that I really have here is the fact that probably a piece of me was on a slave ship hmm. coming from Ireland to America. And that, I'm glad they made it. I'm sorry they had to go through it. And the fact that we are still acting in this ridiculous way today hurts me more than the average person, I think. We have no need to. And we have no need for people to say, oh, we didn't do it. Yes, you did, and you're continuing to do it. So let's straighten it out and show a little love. One last question, and then I'm gonna let okay. Warren have the last question. Um, they say you write for television. You say you write for television. Well, yes. And our latest project, we don't have the exact title yet, but the latest project is about cancer. It's about with the backstories of women who've been through cancer and they have their hair restored after chemotherapy and they tell their stories. Um, and the stories are so heart-wrenching. The fact that the families have been destroyed, there's no money. The fact that um, mothers and sisters and daughters get cancer at the same time. Mothers die and the sisters are still living Fathers do other things and suddenly there's a new woman in the house and the mother's barely dead. All the things that affect you because of the impact of this horrific disease, we are going, we are going to explore. And it's, it's graphic. We show pictures of the actual cuts. We show the tears. We show the angst. And then when you have someone who comes in and says, for the cancer's back for the fourth time, I just want to look beautiful in my coffin. You just say, okay, all right, got it. And it rips your heart apart. Hmm. Again, if we aren't kind to each other, we are in a lot of trouble. Warren? If you had the opportunity today to sit down with the Royals, what would you like to say to them? I would say, first of all, let's talk and understand that this history of denial must end. Just say what you need to say in a very polite statement like you always do. Get to see if you can get Harry and Meghan back and sit down and really have a dialogue. But also you have to explain to the people you're surrounded with mm -hmm. that their behavior is intolerable. You cannot have this behavior. 
It may take a moment for you to totally shift or begin to shift, but we can't have this behavior, nor will we tolerate the behavior from the press. August Jade, I want to thank you so very much for joining us this afternoon. And oh, it's my pleasure. I'm going to try to keep in touch with you so that when your second book drops, we can have you back. <laughs> you better keep in touch with Warren. <laughs> All righty. We will be back well, next week. Uh, I definitely want to link you up with uh, our, our other show. Please do. I would appreciate it. And it's been my pleasure. I've had a wonderful, wonderful time. And if you're ever in Rochester, please let me know. All right. Hold on and a second. We can definitely um, listen to stories. <laughs> All right. We're going to play the we're going to play the closing credits and I want you to hold on okay. a second. Okay. Yes. Concludes this episode of Altitude Adjustment. And thank you for listening. This podcast is streamed live on YouTube and Twitch.tv and is designed for listener interaction. Visit the website, thelionsdenstl.wixsite.com forward slash home to join the discussion. The audio version of Altitude Adjustment is available where you get your podcasts, including Stitcher.com, the iTunes Store, and the Google Play Music Store, to name a few. Remember that the internet is powered by your likes, shares, and comments. So please like, share, and comment on this and other episodes of Altitude Adjustment because it matters. And as always, look out for the other guy because they may not be looking out for you.